Good afternoon. Our last case for today is NRAE GC. We'll hear from the appellant. Good afternoon, Chief Justice, Associate Justices, and may it please the court. My name is Anita Foss. I'm here on behalf of the Guardian Ad Litem. My colleague, Mr. Patrick Kuchet, is here on behalf of the Cumberland County Department of Social Services. We will be sharing our time. Um, I will take 15 minutes. Mr. Kuchet will take 10 minutes, and we would request to reserve five minutes. We are raising three issues in this appeal. I will address the first, which is the con our contention that the Court of Appeals could have and should have determined that the findings of fact here support an adjudication of neglect, given the continued issue with supervision and care in the home. Mr. Kuchet will address our second argument, um, which is that the Court of Appeals failed to properly consider the trial court's conclusion of an injurious environment. And Mr. Kuchet will adopt our third argument in the alternative, which is that the substantial risk of harm is not a necessary element for neglect adjudications. With respect to the first issue, it's our first contention that the Court of Appeals failed to properly conduct a de novo review. Uh, this court has recently made clear what the standard is um, in NRA KS, and that case is very similar to this one, where there is a stipulated set of findings of fact that are not an issue. And in those circumstances, the Court of Appeals is intended to take the totality of the factual circumstances, factual findings, and determine what the conclusions of law are fresh. And the Court of Appeals did not do that here. Instead, the Court of Appeals reviewed, determined that the trial court had not specifically stated there was a substantial risk of harm, and remanded back to the trial court for further proceedings on the same record. Um, it's our contention first that the Court of Appeals should not have remanded, and instead the Court of Appeals should have fully decided the conclusions of law itself rather than remanding. Um, but second, our contention is, had the Court of Appeals conducted that analysis, it should have done so consistently with Judge Griffin's dissent where it should have determined that there was no need for the trial court to specifically state that there was a substantial risk of harm, given that all of the factual evidence pointed towards that um, in the record. The findings of fact here are fairly straightforward. Um, the mother had two children that were adjudicated, ne abused, neglected, and dependent. The factual circum there, circumstances there considered uh, malnourishment, um, physical bruises, and a generally injurious environment in the home. Um, those, she was also convicted of misdemeanor child abuse as a result of those conditions. Uh, mother completed parenting services, including uh, parenting classes, and was instructed on proper sleeping arrangements for um, children while taking those classes. She competed, completed services in August of 2019, and then in December of 2019, um, she gave birth to Glenda's younger brother, Gary. And when Gary was three months old, um, on 12 March 2020, mother placed him in a pack-and-play with thick, fuzzy blankets, other blankets surrounding, and left him for three hours. Um, when mother returned three hours later, she found Gary unresponsive in the crib. She went to get the paternal grandmother, who was a nurse, um, who directed her to call 911. Mother called 911, EMS arrived, and pronounced Gary dead at the scene. They also noted that there was evidence of asphyxia in that he had um, foaming around his nose and his mouth. Um, EMS also noted the blankets and the bottles in the pack and play. Um, the medical examiner, al examiner also noted that um, the risk to a child under the age of one, if they're kept in a pack and play or crib with blankets, 
is an asphyxiation risk, and that also that um, asphyxia could not be ruled out as a potential cause of Gary's death. The petition was filed the day after Gary's death, um, alleging that Glenda was being neglected due to being in an injurious environment and lacking proper care and supervision. Um, at adjudication, the parties stipulated to the findings of fact, which the trial court determined was sufficient to warrant an adjudication of neglect. Um, at, the at the Court of Appeals, two of those findings were challenged, but neither of those remains an issue. Um, and then the Court of Appeals entered its determination, which again remanded back to the trial court for further findings on this substantial risk of harm element. Um, and their reasoning really focused on this idea that the neglect statute specifically states that a prior adjudication of neglect or the death of a child in a home due to um, suspected neglect are considerations, but the case law has made clear, which we don't contest, that those things typically standing alone are not sufficient to support an adjudication of neglect where it's not conduct that's done to that particular child. Instead, there must be other circumstances that are present that suggest a risk of harm to the child or a likelihood of repetition of neglect. Um, Counsel, let me stop you there. Just under the statute, is there a requirement for um, substantial risk of future abuse or neglect? Um, the statutory text does not contain that language, although substantial risk of harm is an element um, that's cited in the, in the case law with respect to needing to find proper care supervision. And then it, there is also case law stating that the prior adjudication of neglect, um, where it's not the same child, requires a likelihood of repetition of neglect. Um, but it's our contention here that um, where the Court of Appeals erred was in considering those two events in isolation, because this is not a circumstance where you have either a prior adjudication of neglect or the death of a child in a home due to suspected neglect. This is a case where you have both, um, and those are both circumstances that the legislature has specifically called out in the statute as relevant to um, a neglect finding. And you can't just consider those items in isolation, you have to consider the overall course of conduct, which here, these children, um, the older children were adjudicated, neglected, mother partook in services, completed services, um, and despite completing those services, failed to properly apply the services that she received. Because if she had, she would not have put Gary in the pack and play with the thick fuzzy blankets with the other loose blankets around. She had been instructed on proper sleeping arrangements for children. Um, and as a result, Gary died. And so um, it's our contention that you know, this is essentially a facially obvious case where there should be a risk of harm to the remaining children in the home given the continual failure to exercise proper care and supervision combined with um, the severity of the circumstances and the harm that ultimately resulted from that. If we agree that under the facts of this case that the, um, the sudden unexpected infant death of the one child is sufficient to show neglect that then creates um, or uh, neglect for other siblings. How do we distinguish this from any case of SIDS or sudden unexplained infant death? What, 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 why wouldn't this then mean that any time there's a, a crib death, SIDS death, siblings, if there are any, would also be subjected to being determined to be neglected? First, we would contend that this is not just um, the death of the child alone, it's the circumstances of the death of the child, which is that the child was placed in the crib with the blankets, which is not an appropriate um, sleeping method for children at the age of this child. But, but that's, off, that's common in these mm -hmm. types of 
but it's also not just the um, the death alone. Again, it is the combination of the history here, which is where we do have this prior adjudication of neglect, um, the services that were provided, and then the ultimate resulting in another death here um, with, again, with very severe consequences. And so it's, it's true that you know, not every case of, an, of a death would be an adjudication of neglect, but given the severity of the circumstances here and the combination of the circumstances here, we contend that this is one where there should be. Well, the, the autopsy findings, and I believe the court's findings of fact, are that the, that the mother's decision to place the infant in a, a pack and play with blankets was a risk factor um, for, for the death that ultimately occurred. But the, the, there are other risk factors present as well, correct? That is correct. They're, they indicated it was a risk factor, but did not contend that it was the sole possible factor. And, and so the, 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 a risk factor is not the same thing as a cause, right? That's correct. And so, and, and what, what do we make of the, um, I, I know it's not in the court's findings, but the autopsy report that, that, all, that, that essentially says ultimately the cause of death here is undetermined. I think we need to focus on, on the court's findings of fact here um, rather than going outside of the findings of fact. But I would also contend that, um, again, in combination with the other factors and circumstances, the issues with the prior children and the treatment of the prior children, that um, you know the trial court had considered um, the range of circumstances and ultimately determined that this warranted neglect here. So, so, now, so I, I thought I understood you earlier to say that while there might not be any findings of substantial risk of harm, the evidence suggested that, and we should look at the evidence. But now you're saying we should just rely on what the findings state in the court order. Um, in line with um, In Ray Chaos, we're contending that you should focus on the findings of fact okay. um, rather than going outside of the evidence that is presented. In light of what you just discussed with Justice Earls, uh, why shouldn't this court give deference to how the Court of Appeals has treated the findings of fact with the Court of Appeals looking at what has been represented in the trial court's findings of fact, but that which is uh, somewhat deficient in the findings of fact, according to the Court of Appeals, and just remand to the trial court and allow the trial court to uh, further develop the findings of fact to see if, in fact, neglect has been more uh, correctly established. What's wrong with taking that measured approach? Um, well, again, here we contend that's not necessary because as with Judge Griffin's dissent, we believe that those, uh, the finding of substantial risk of harm is clear from the face of the evidence given these continued circumstances. And so we believe that that is um, you know, unnecessary in this case and also, again, is not um, the standard of review that is, has been applied, which is, again, full de novo review of the facts to determine if the conclusions of law are supported by those. So would you have this court to say that the Court of Appeals majority was wrong in deferring uh, by way of remand to the trial court or that it just outright made an error of law? Um, we would contend that they erred by deferring to the trial court, um, that they should have just made that determination themselves based on, the, made the conclusions of law themselves. Um, so you got a, a four-month-old child that has, uh, according to the finding of fact, it was a propped, propped a bottle for him to feed. Uh, in addition to the blankets in the 
pack and play. And then there's a, also a finding that there were two used baby bottles and several blankets in the pack and play. Um, is that uh, the proper care of a four-month-old? And, and, and let me add that she left the baby that way for at least three hours. Yes, we would contend that also all of those factors go into the consideration of the circumstances here. Um, again, it's not just the fuzzy blankets or it's the amount of time that the child was left. It's that um, you know there were noted bottles. And so I think all of those go to suggesting that there were issues with proper supervision in the home. Council, um, although the trial court didn't make a finding that neglect caused Gary's death, um, the statutory language says it's relevant whether that juvenile lives in a home where another juvenile has died as a result of suspected abuse or neglect. So the statute doesn't require a finding that the, the death was indeed caused by neglect for it to be relevant to the court's determination. Am I right about that? or? Yes, that's correct. Um, there does not need to be actual neglect that's determined for it to be considered in the statutory language. So you contend there's su suspected neglect? Here. We would contend that there's suspected neglect, um, and then also you know, we would, we would note that the Court of Appeals specifically found that Gary was in an injurious environment at the time of his death. Um, and so the Court of Appeals did determine that Gary was, um, would have been neglected due to being in an injurious environment at the time of his death. Um, we would also note that, you know, although it's true that Glenda and Gary were different ages and the sleeping arrangements may be different um, across the children or their, their specific care requirements might be different, um, Glenda is still at a very young and vulnerable age. She's 18 months old. She cannot speak for herself. She cannot advocate for herself or care for herself. And so she would continue to be reliant on the mother's um, care and supervision as she was going forward. Um, really, in our contention, there are no facts here that support anything other than neglect. The only finding on the record that supports this is not neglect um, in our contention is that the mother completed services. But although she completed services, it's our contention that she did not apply what she learned in those services. Um, rather than apply those lessons, again, she left Gary in the pack and play for hours with thick fuzzy blankets and with the bottle. Um, and as a result, uh, Gary died. We brought up the age of the children. Uh, that are at issue here, uh, Glenda being beyond the age of an infant child. Um, and of course, Gary having, uh, I'm sorry, and um, yes, Gary having been four months old um, at the time of his unfortunate death. Uh, is there a distinction there that you would see concerning the uh, substantial risk of future neglect, considering the fact that we're talking about a four month old uh, Gary versus an 18-month-old Glenda? Um, our contention is that you shouldn't look so granularly at the substantial risk of harm, um, you know, the specific elements that might harm Gary as opposed to might harm Glenda, because in these circumstances, it's unclear what other lessons um, mother might not choose to apply when it comes to caring for Glenda. Um, and instead, you should step back and look at the totality of the circumstances here um, to determine what um, what potential for substantial risk of harm there is. Well, I know you've taken pains to talk about the fact that the mother was advised as to how to uh, treat a newborn child with blankets and so forth around. Does the same type of danger exist for an 18-month-old as exists for a four-month-old that you've emphasized? 
um, with sleeping arrangements. The medical examiner, not examiner noted that the risk was for infants um, one year or less. So the um, findings show, show that that's different. But again, our contention is that you should look at the circumstances as, as a whole rather than the specifics um, to show whether the overall totality suggests an issue with care. Um, so, so I, and I know you're about to pass the baton, uh, but one last question, just so I can put what you're saying in context and appreciate it. Are you saying then that this court should advance uh, to the level of an 18-month-old, the fact that the mother may not follow appropriate uh, care responsibilities for an 18-month-old because she did not do the same for a four-month-old? Um, in these circumstances, yes, because again, both children are at a young and vulnerable age. They don't have the ability to care for him, themselves. And so while there is a certain difference between the type of care that a four-month-old and then an 18-month-old requires, there are still the same basic concerns about um, mother being responsible for all of their basic necessities. Thank you. I'll defer the remainder to my colleague. Thank you, counsel. Good afternoon. May it please the court. My name is Patrick Kuchet and I represent Cumberland County Department of Social Services. Um, I would first like to begin with continuing on with Justice Morgan, Morgan's question about how you would apply the facts and circumstances in this case to Glenda, who is 18 months old. And what I would point the court to would be the adjudication for the older siblings. The juveniles that were at issue here, Gary and Glenda, are the same ages within one month of the older juveniles that were brought into care for malnourishment, maltreatment, and neglect. And the fact that the respondent mother in this matter was not demonstrating her services and her knowledge of those services that she's completed to the trial court showed that there was a, there was a high chance of likelihood of the neglect being continuing. Um, Case in point, the younger juvenile that was uh, originally removed from the home uh, in the 17JA file was actually underweight, malnourished, and if you look at the transcript on page 28, um, they quote the medical provider's opinion of the younger juvenile is that the juvenile was having a lack of interaction in the home and being left in the crib and bassinet for extended periods of time which is the exact same situation that led to Gary's death in this case. So the neglect has already started to repeat. It just started with Gary. And it's the department's contention that when it comes to Glenda, who was the same age as one of her older siblings when that child was first removed from the home, that the neglect would continue. She was continuing not to properly care for her children. And when you look at the totality of the circumstances, the circumstances which led to the removal of the older juveniles is still present and existing at the day of the filing of this petition. Does that still go towards uh, even the father in terms of the other factors of necessity that must be found? Well, uh, when it comes to the respondent father, we need to remember, uh, it's important to remember that it's the status of the juvenile. Yes, the respondent father's actions are um, informative, but the status of the juvenile, regardless if the respondent father was taking proper care when he was around, the respondent mother and the respondent parent's home created the conditions which led to the death of Glenda. And as evidenced here, he's not able to supervise mom at all times. And there are findings of fact in the adjudication order that point to the respondent father is aware of mom's previous misdemeanor child abuse conviction. He's aware and he agreed to supervise all contact. And within six to eight months of the department closing its investigative case for the older juvenile, 
we had the death of, of, of Gary in the home. Okay, and just so our record is clear, I think you had a slip. You said the death of Glenda, I think you meant. Uh, uh, sorry, the death Gary. of Gary. I okay, yeah, Gary. well, I'm here to help make sure the record's straight, so that's fine. But in terms of the other factors aspect, uh, although the father was not involved with Gary's death, uh, nonetheless, you feel as though this would be imputed to him as other factors to be properly considered? I do believe that the death of a juvenile is another factor on top of uh, a death of a juvenile in the home due to suspected neglect is another factor that's considered in NRAJAM regarding a previous adjudication of a juvenile. Um, when you look at the, fa the facts of this case, this is the first case I could find on appellate record that has both of the um, other relevant factors under the neglect statute of a death of a juvenile in the home due to suspected neglect and previous adjudications of a juvenile from a, a parent that was residing in the same home. So to me, there should be extreme deference to those two factors. There's no, there, it just says the statute, apologize. The statute just states that those are relevant to the trial court. It does not state how much weight is supposed to be given and neither does the majority opinion in the, from the Court of Appeals. It, the majority opinion of the Court of Appeals states that we are solely, the juvenile Glenda was solely adjudicated based on the prior adjudication of her two older siblings, but ignores the other factor in the home of a death of a juvenile from suspected neglect. And to clarify the point that was made earlier um, from Justice Allen's question, the Court of Appeals found at paragraph 10, the last sentence of paragraph 10 of their opinion, that these findings show respondent parents caused Gary to be in an injurious environment at the time of his death. So the Court of Appeals concluded that Gary was neglected at the time of his death. Um, and I think that's important to note here that the trial court may not have found it, but the Court of Appeals found them to be neglected. And I think that is an other relevant factor if you, uh, when you're looking at NRAJAM that is considered and should be considered by the Court of Appeals. I think one, one challenge with that is, of course, the appellate courts can't find facts. So isn't, isn't the question here, uh, is there a finding or is there evidence in the record sufficient for the, for the Court of Appeals to be making a conclusion of law based on facts that exist? And they didn't make any findings, but I believe that based on that, they said they are taking all the findings that uh, they specifically referenced the findings of the court. And they conclude that there was neglect. And I think that that was properly done. And um, I think that their main issue was, yes, there was neglect for Gary, but how do you impute that on Glenda? And what I would say is um, when you're living in an injurious environment, that neglect of a juvenile can be imputed on other juveniles in the home. And I think that would have been the properly, uh, the proper analysis here. Um, and Your Honor, um, turning into that, uh, segueing into the environment injurious to the juvenile's welfare, it's important to note that lack of proper supervision and care is a separate ground for neglect than an environment, um, than a juvenile's being living in an environment that is injurious to the juvenile's welfare. The, the opinion, both the majority and the dissent, do not analyze the conclusion of law at any point in time that the juvenile lived in an environment injurious to her welfare. That, prong, that ground is not even analyzed by the dissent or the majority. 
Um, they only analyze that the juvenile does not receive proper care, supervision, or discipline. And it is the department's contention that that is an error. Yes, there may not have been enough, it, even if the Court of uh, Appeals or this court agree that there was not enough findings of fact to conclude that the juvenile uh, was not receiving proper care, there's no analysis as to the other ground, um, 101.15e, that creates or allows to be created in a living environment that is injurious to the juvenile's welfare. That was never addressed by the Court of Appeals, um, which, as this court has found, only one ground is necessary. And they didn't even analyze one of the findings of the court or conclusions of the law of the trial court. And that was in court, um, the conclusion of law number two in the trial court's adjudication order. Um, and um, along those lines, it is also the department's contention that a substantial risk of harm should not need to be found by the trial court or the court of appeals when the trial court finds that the juvenile is residing in an environment injurious to their, uh, their welfare. It is the department's contention that when the court finds that the juvenile is living in an environment injurious to their welfare, it presupposes a substantial risk of harm. The, an additional finding or conclusion that substantial risk of harm existed is erroneous at that point in time. The word injurious environment is in that conclusion of law. So the requirement of a substantial risk of harm should not be necessary. And going back to uh, Justice Berger's question, substantial risk of harm is not in the statute anywhere for neglect. In fact, the words substantial risk only appear in three places in the entirety of Chapter 7B. Um, and that would be the definition of abuse, the definition of safe home, and criteria for non-secure custody. So, so you are asking us to overrule JAM. Your Honor, I would say. That it relies on. Yes, Your Honor. Um, okay. And JAM relied on Inray Seifert, which was also um, cited by both the majority and the dissent for the reasoning. Um, but since that and time. And Inray Stumbo. So sorry. And Inray And Inray Stumbo. So quite a few. Yes. <laughs> and the reason I would, the reason why we contend that is at no point in time since even the uh, latest change to statute in the definition of neglect just as late as last year, have they include, has the legislator included substantial risk of harm in its definition? Um, and I do want to reserve some time for rebuttal, um, but if C there are any counsel, questions, I'm happy count, to answer. Counsel, is there an argument of that uh, of legislative acquiescence to that case law? I, I would concede that there could be an argument for legislative acquiescence by the fact that it this, uh, the idea of substantial risk of harm has existed since s around 1989, 1993. Um, but I do think that um, when you're looking at the text of the statute and when trial courts are looking for guidance, um, especially because there is a separate prong for an injurious environment and lack of proper uh, care and supervision, that the inclusion of substantial risk in the uh, abuse uh, definition and not in the neglect adjudication uh, definition uh, tends to believe that a substantial risk is not necessary for the trial court. Thank you, counsel. Thank you. Hear from the appellee. May it please the court. My name is Sean Vitrano, and I represent the respondent father in this case. Please don't do away with your prior precedent in JAM and Stumbo where, where there is a requirement there be uh, uh, an impairment to the juvenile shown. That will just simply invite 
the state to come in and, and uh, start removing children whenever it feels like there's a bad parenting decision where there's absolutely no harm to a juvenile, and it triggers that exact concern that the court had this afternoon about what happens in accidental deaths in, in cribs, either due to SIDS or for some other reason. This was an accidental death of a juvenile. The Court of Appeals got this case exactly right. It, it, it applied a, it conducted a proper de novo review. It, it looked at the stipulated facts and the other facts that were borne out by the couple of pieces of evidence that were introduced at the adjudication hearing. Um, and it followed quite clearly this court's guidance in JAM uh, and determined that the findings didn't support a conclusion that Glenda was a, a neglected juvenile. The, the trial court's adjudication rested entirely on what happened to Gary and mother's prior DSS history and criminal history. There are no specific adjudicatory findings in that order addressing Glenda other than her date of birth, her age at the time of filing the petition, and that she resided in Cumberland County. In particular, the trial court omitted its reasoning. It did not find that Glenda suffered any physical, mental, or emotional impairment, or that she was at a substantial risk of the same. It's, it's, it's our firm position in this case that such a finding was necessary because more than one inference is permissible from all of the other evidence in the case. In other words, a fact finder could easily conclude that this juvenile was in no way at any risk as a result of something that was going on in her parents' home. And I'll explain why. First, the home didn't pose any danger. At least it wasn't shown to pose any danger to Glenda. In JAM, the court um, said that in concluding that a juvenile lives in an injurious environment, the clear and convincing evidence in the record must show current circumstances that present a risk to the juvenile. Well, when Glenda was removed from that home, that home was observed to be in good condition. It was a it was characterized as an apartment, but it was really a two-story townhouse where the bedroom was upstairs. The police officer who was in that house after Gary died wrote in his report that the residence was in order. Now certainly in this case, DSS would have noted in the petition if the house was not clean or if there were some observed hazards for an 18-month-old in the home, but there was absolutely no mention, not one word of the condition of the home in that petition. And that is a far cry from the filthy and the deplorable condition of the mother's home where she resided with the older children when those children were adjudicated, neglected, abused, and dependent. DSS didn't show that anything had changed by the time we got to the adjudication hearing either. The, uh, one could infer from that lack of a finding that things had gotten worse in the house somehow that the home was just as safe for Glenda as it was at the time of her removal. And that adjudication hearing didn't occur uh, for 533 days. It was more than a year and, a, and five months later. Second, I think it's important that the, you know, the court was required to consider the risk to Glenda based on her age and the circumstances in which she resided. I think, Justice Morgan, you were kind of keying in on this point. The injurious environment for Gary here was his sleeping environment inside the pack and play to the extent that those blankets in the pack and play posed a suffocation risk for him. Gary died when he wasn't even three months old, but Glenda was 18 months old when the original petition was filed and she was two weeks shy 
of her third birthday at the time of the adjudication hearing. There is absolutely no evidence and no finding that Glenda was at the same type of risk that newborn Gary faced based on how he was positioned in a pack and play and whether there were blankets nearby. What's your response to the other side's view that we are as a court to extrapolate what happened to four-month-old Gary and apply it to 18-month Glenda from the standpoint of saying if this happened to four-month-old Gary, then 18-month-old Glenda is at risk as well because we look at the mother as having this advancing uh, dereliction of responsibility as children get older. Mm -hmm. I don't think that you can do that because, I mean, one, the, ne the neglect adjudication is a status determination that is specific to that child. You've got to point to some specific risk to that child. If you think back on the abuse cases where uh, a kid is abused in a home, but the other children are completely oblivious to that abuse and they're not affected by it and there are no other factors in that home, you cannot adjudicate the, the remaining kids who are not abused or neglected as neglected. And I think that's what the dissent was doing, was essentially trying to gloss over a more detailed analysis of what the real risk to Glenda was in this particular home with these parents at that stage. It, essentially, what it was saying was, look, mom had a, a really poor history with DSS with some older children. Mind you, that happened in a different home with a different father and the father was, was the one who got the felony conviction for child abuse because he was the one who was supervising those kids while mother was working at the cookout. And then uh, we'll add to that the fact that we have an infant who died in this home and okay, so the, these parents are not doing a very good job of supervising these kids. That's, that's not a sufficient analysis as, as far as we are concerned. And that's not the precedent that we think the court should, should, should set in this case. Counsel, you, you wouldn't uh, and I, I asked this question as a father of five, um, you, you wouldn't deny that 18-month-olds uh, do require a fair amount of supervision. Absolutely, Your Honor, absolutely. And, you know, I mean, that sort of goes to this point of, of, of what is mother doing? So mother knows Gary's sleeping habit when she put him down, okay? Mother fed Gary a bottle. Yes, she may have propped that bottle using some of the blankets in the crib. I think that's pretty well supported by the record. Now, there was no showing, of course, that her propping a bottle was in any way connected to what happened to him to cause his death. She burped him, she put him back in the pack and play on a blanket, and then something, and then she knew how long he napped. She knew that his nap was typically three hours long. And I think she put him down at 4.15 and she went in because she hadn't heard him crying around 7.35, if my recollection of the record is, is okay. So she did exactly, and what was she doing during those three hours or so? She's taking care of the 18-year-old. The father is at work at that point. So I don't know that you can say that, you know, that this is sort of a dereliction of mom's duty. Mom had her hands full with, with two kids of these age, ages. The usual risk indicators, the usual suspects that we are looking for in these kinds of cases where uh, a sibling is, is exposed to neglect or abuse, they were not present in this case. You know, this court looks for other factors to suggest that neglect will be repeated. And here the trial court simply couldn't point to any other factors. And the reason why is because there was no evidence. There was no history of domestic violence between these, these uh, parents. 
Um, there was absolutely nothing in this record to suggest that respondents were in anything other than a loving and stable relationship. There was evidence that they'd lived in this home for the, at least father for four years. Uh, there's no evidence of substance abuse. The officer who went into the house said, I didn't see any signs of any alcohol or substance abuse in the home. And, and DSS never alleged anything remotely like a history of substance abuse by either parent. And there's no evidence that either respondent in this case suffered from any mental <coughs> health or physical condition that would have affected their ability to care for Glenda. On top of that, these respondents were actually caring for Glenda and the mother had complied with her case plan in the sibling cases. So this isn't a case where the court needed to be completely predictive of the risk of harm. You know, Glenda had lived with respondents in that same home for 18 months. It's pretty significant, I think, that despite the adjudication involving the older half-siblings and the fact that mom had uh, child abuse charges pending, DSS didn't file a petition when Glenda was born. It was apparently satisfied with father's care and supervision and felt that any risk to Glenda was managed by mother having the support of father and the grandmother who lived in the same complex just a few doors away. And it's also interesting in this case because DSS provided case management for uh, these respondents from the time that Glenda was less than three months old until she was 11 months old. And certainly during that time that it was providing case management to these parents who were in that home with that child, uh, there was an ample opportunity to make a record if there was uh, some cause for concern about their parenting. Counsel, suppose that, that Gary and Glenda were twins. Would you be arguing, would you be, what would your argument be like then? I mean, are, are you essentially saying that even though Glenda at the time of the petition was a very young child and required, like as all young children do, a significant degree of care, that because Glenda wasn't susceptible to the precise form of neglect that Gary Ex apparently experienced here that there's no basis for finding of neglect? I don't think you even, I mean, I think it, it, my view of it is that there were, there were vastly different risks that these two children were exposed to. I mean, there, I don't see any evidence of any risk that the 18-month-year-old was exposed I, I gave you a complex question, so, so right. sorry, let me take it in pieces. What if Glenda and Gary had been twins? then my response to the court would be, we would be evaluating how the parents were actually caring for the twin. And if it was the same circumstance where they were both um, born prematurely and they were at risk and uh, they were putting them in cribs with blankets uh, where there was an accidental asphyxiation risk that was foreseeable to these parents, I think potentially, yeah. Aren't you then essentially saying that what happened to Gary is irrelevant? No, I'm not saying it's irrelevant at all. Uh, I think that the, the trial court was right to consider what happened to Gary. The trial court was right to consider what happened to the older siblings in the other home based on how mom was caring for those kids. Absolutely. How much weight it should have given it. Uh, certainly our view is that that wasn't entitled to much weight. But you don't even get into the weight question here on de novo review. You're looking at a set of facts that the parties have largely stipulated to and you're trying to determine whether those facts alone give support this legal conclusion that Glenda was neglected. 
that's, I hope that answers the question, Your Honor. Well, in taking these factual matters that have been uh, relayed by, by Justice Allen, converting them to legal analysis, are you saying that the uh, principle of other factors does not apply to your client, the father, in looking at Gary's death, looking at the fact that the father was at work while Gary was being cared for by his mother, which ultimately led to uh, his death, that other factors in its generality as applied in the law does not have uh, any impact upon your client? No, I think Ms. Foss actually answered that question correctly. I mean, we're, it, the, the adjudication has to do with the status of the child, not the culpability of the parents. So whether father was home or not home, I, I don't know that that is the determinative factor here. Well, I think what I'm saying and what I'm arguing is that the trial court needed to find more than it did to adjudicate Glenda as a neglected juvenile. That there were not, there was just not a showing of enough other stuff that created a risk for that particular child to support that legal conclusion. The dissent talked about other factors. Are you then saying that other factors does indeed have its place here? Other factors, yeah, abso absolutely. I mean, they, they, there need to be other factors to establish that Glenda was exposed to a substantial risk of impairment. Okay, and is it your position that they do exist or don't exist? They don't exist. To make sure I They don't it. exist on this record. Absolutely not. Absolutely not. Um, so in addition to sort of I'm building on my argument that these other risk indicators, the typical stuff that we see that would cause us to believe that Glenda was exposed to a risk of harm were not present. There's evidence that respondents were caring for Glenda, had complied with a case plan, were providing good parenting, and nobody had any objection to that until Gary died. It was Gary's death that was the precipitating event to remove Glenda from the home. Um, And really, I mean, I think I, you know, I, I've read the Court of Appeals opinion and I've, uh, I've sort of studied, I mean, the Court of Appeals, the majority in any event said, we can, make a, we can make a determination that Gary was probably a neglected juvenile on these facts based on that. But, but one, we don't need to do that here in this case because you're looking at whether Glenda was a neglected juvenile, not whether Gary was. But secondarily, I think that that's, problematic because of the accidental nature of the death. I mean, you have the ME's report that, that, as well as the observation from the officer who was in the home and saw him after he had passed away. I mean, Gary was a healthy two-month-old baby. I mean, yes, he had been born pre premature, but the, the ME said he was a well-developed, well-nourished infant appearing compatible with his reported age. He had no physical problems. By all accounts, he was a healthy baby, and there were just no f signs of any abuse. So, again, that's a far cry from what was going on in Mother's Home in 2017 that precipitated um, that adjudication for those older kids. I've talked about the circumstances of what she did that day. I don't think there was something improper in, in burping him, putting him down for his usual nap at the usual time, and going away and taking care of the 18-month-old for three hours. I don't think that that shows a lack of supervision. This was a pack and play. This was not a crib with a mattress. There's a lot of emphasis being placed on the fact that the pack and play had a blanket, but a pack and play by its nature is designed to 
fold up. There's not much of a bottom to it. There might be a cardboard fold-out bottom. And Mother here had just folded up a, a softer blanket to create some kind of mattress for Gary across the bottom of that pack-and-play. We don't know why she put him on his side. I mean, is it because he was congested and he was just getting over a cold? We don't know why she put him on the side. We don't know what she was instructed in terms of actual proper sleeping arrangements. The, I mean, the, the, that's a, certainly a stipulated finding in this case. But it's almost like we're making a leap to say the way that this baby was placed in this crib is something that these parents should have known not to do without any evidence to support that that's how they were instructed. I mean, generally, proper sleeping arrangements for a, for a newborn who's at risk of sudden infant death is don't place the baby on its belly in a crib because the baby's not going to be able to turn itself over and there's a suffocation risk. Were they instructed about not putting the baby on a blanket in the bottom of a pack and play after the baby had been sick with a cold? I, I don't know. We don't know. And I don't think that it's right for us to draw a conclusion that this is uh, some kind of negligent supervision on mom's part for doing that thing without more evidence. Uh, uh, Counselor, uh, if I might. Yes, uh, Your Honor. Uh, I understand your argument about perhaps we don't know how they were instructed, but the way I read the record, um, the father is refusing to enter into any kind of case plan. Did I misread that? I, I, I remember seeing something to that effect, Your Honor, but they weren't really there were services that were, so it's kind of a little bit weird, right? There were services provided to both respondents in connection with the adjudication and disposition for mothers, older children. And I think that, I'm trying to remember if a case plan was even offered to father at some point prior to this event with Gary happening, having to do with Glenda, I, don't th I think the answer is no. Is well, that what you're asking, Your Honor? Yes, I'll need to check the record because I'd made a note that he had not and it just, uh, it baffles me that after going through such an experience, then one, given your argument, would not be hungry for more information on how to manage children of any age or the behavior of children of any age or the care and feeding of care. Uh, but thank you for your answer. One can imagine how absolutely painful and terrifying it was for these parents, especially this mother, when she went to check on this baby and saw that he was unresponsive. And, and, and even then, mom tried to do the right thing by picking him up and running to the grandmother's house, who was a nurse, and then calling 911 and trying to resuscitate this, this baby. But on top of that, then they had this added insult and injury where DSS came in and instructed that Glenda be taken out of that home and placed with her grandmother under restrictive conditions where because of COVID and because everybody was waiting on this autopsy report, these parents, especially mother, mother got the short end of the stick in terms of her visitation and her ability to, to be with Glenda. The, the, this is, the trial court got it wrong. The court of appeals got it right when it applied the law and said that these findings are just insufficient to adjudicate this juvenile as neglected. And, and we believe that this court should affirm the decision of the Court of Appeals. Thank you. Thank you, counsel. Rebuttal.
Thank you. May it please the court. Um, Justice Berenger, um, when it comes to the engagement of the case plan question that you asked uh, Respondent Father's counsel, I believe in the non-secure phases, it was found that he was not engaging in services at the time during non-secure phase. Um, I believe that is what those orders were stayed. Thank you. I knew I recalled it somewhere. Um, and um, it, the, the main fact of this is, this is not a case of a standard sudden infant death syndrome. Um, this is a case that involves a child being placed, a premature child, that the respondent father in his brief concedes that he was only weighing 10 pounds at three months old and was only 5% of his weight capacity. That's on page three of the respondent father's uh, brief. Um, he was only at the 5% um, criteria at the time and was placed on his side after having a bottle propped in his mouth and left alone for three hours. Um, Respondent father argues that she was caring for the 18-month-old during that time. That's not in the record anywhere. We don't, and in fact, the record is silent as to what she was doing during that three hours. Um, the fact of the matter is that we have a death of a juvenile, which the Court of Appeals has concluded was the result of neglect, combined with previous adjudications for neglect and abuse, which were from lack of proper care and supervision, leaving juveniles alone for hours at a time, leaving juveniles unsupervised in their crib for hours at a time. That is the exact same scenario that we have going on in this home on the filing of this petition. And yes, the department did not put on any evidence regarding change of circumstances at the time of the adjudication hearing, but that's because the, the adjudication is based on the time of the filing of the petition. Evidence post-petition is not proper for adjudication. Um, and Justice Berger, uh, the department would agree with your point um, that uh, you brought up about the precise form of neglect that occurred with Gary not being repeated for Glenda. Um, it doesn't, there's no, there are no, um, there's nothing in the statute or case law that states it has to be the exact same type of neglect for one juvenile to be imputed on the other, just that the home is injurious uh, to the juveniles or that there's a lack of proper care. Um, And if there were any other questions uh, that I can answer, I only have about 10 seconds left, I'd be happy to do so. Thank you, counsel. Thank you. Thank you to everyone.